Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to, welcome to this session on free speech in which I am talking to two, um, two of the leading non-fiction writers in this country. On my far left is Patrick Mullins. Three years ago, he published an unlikely biography of Billy McMahon, which is one of the best political biographies I've read. It's a superb book and has won many prizes that it deserves to win. Um, since then, as a kind of exercise to flex his muscles, he's written a book about Portnoy's complaint, about the trial of Portnoy's complaint 50 years ago this year, um, a trial in which, as he will explain, I had a leading role. Um, and that is censorship. That was free speech back then. In the middle of us here is Malcolm Knox. Malcolm is the author of over a dozen non-fiction books, of which the latest is Truth is Trouble, which focuses on the case of Israel Folau. He's also the author of, a dozen, of, of half a dozen novels, the latest of which is Bluebird. Um, I don't know when he gets time to live and breathe because he's constantly publishing and one of the most distinguished writers in this country and an old colleague of mine um, in newspapers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to these two. <laughs> okay, you two. Um, what makes speech free and so what? Uh, how long have you got? Uh, We've um, got an hour. <laughs> now, let, let's just start with a really short answer, which is we have to qualify it as part of the, the Western liberal tradition um, uh, and uh, not as a universal right, um, but as something that was declared universal by, by Western uh, civilization about 200, 250 years ago. Um, why don't we just take as a starting point that everything is free un until somebody tells you it's not, and until somebody acts to stop you? Patrick. Uh, free speech, abstract thing. Into the microphone. Sorry. An abstract that means absolutely nothing until it's begun to be boiled down to context and specific words and specific phrases and ideas that you want to express. Okay, let me throw something at you as a possibility. Free speech is the opportunity to speak. Sure. It does not mean what, you, what comes out of your mouth is decent or clean or sensible or kind or true. Absolutely. It is an opportunity to speak. Sure. But at the moment, the debate about free speech, when, 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 when somebody stands up says something appalling and says, but, but speech is free. That's a mistake, isn't it? That sense of free, that it comes without repercussions. That's not what we're talking about, is it? No. One of the things to, we have to kind of keep in mind here is that while we have a freedom to speak, it's not without repercussions. It's not without costs. Um, we have a town square and we like to police that town square. We rule in things, we rule out other things. And just because you can say something at a particular time doesn't mean you necessarily should or won't have some kicks or punches back afterward. Malcolm? Well, there, are, there might be things that I would like to say to you right now. Um, uh, you know, or, or in front of people. And um, uh, we, we don't... 
um, call the limits of uh, politeness, politeness in company, a form of censorship, um, but they are a limitation on, on our free speech. Um, and the forms of, and I guess what we're going to talk about, are the, um, the way silencing is exercised. In, in my case, I'm silenced from saying what I think about your... I'm glad is, is out of sensitivity that. to your feelings. Yes, yes. But there, there may be any number of other um, uh, mechanisms of, of um, silencing that, that I am obeying. But, Patrick, the thing is about silencing, isn't it, and here I'm pointing to the book on Portnoy, is that for many people at many times, silencing is an act of decency. It's how we express our moral worth by making sure things are silenced, like the writings of Philip Roth. Yes. However, so much of the time, who gets to silence other people and who gets to decide what's going to be in and out of line is not always going to be agreed upon. One of the struggles of the censorships against the censorship system in the first part of the 20th century was that you had a top-down suppression of various areas of speech and various areas of debate and ideas that you know, kind of needed to come to fruition. And even though Australia has long indicated support for censorship, it's not true to say that that support is monolithic or that it's not without no, varying degrees. No. And so some of the, one of the debates that was had in the, in, in the censorship um, era, you know, up until the 1970s, was that there were vital areas of debate that were intrinsic to the identity of this country and to who we wanted to be that were ruled completely out of order and completely not Examples. out of the debate. Examples? Uh, abortion, contraception, um, power dynamics within marriage, sexuality, uh, race and racial identity, family values, social values, political values too. Um, some of the most famous instances of censorship have been around novels and works of literature that critiqued the, the, the political system as it stood in those areas in the part of the 20th century. So J.M. Harcourt's Upsurge, for example, was banned because it portrayed a magistrate taking a piss. It was literally bringing the judiciary into ridicule by portraying that, so that's why it was banned. Closing down those areas of debate, um, you know, that's what the censorship system was originally about, uh, and that's where principled, I think, opposition could emerge to the speech and to the censorship that we had. Why did the challenge of, why was Portnoy, um, why was Portnoy defended? Why was Portnoy fought over at that time? What had happened that made this very, very dramatic fight possible? The big thing that had happened at this point was that the federal and state governments had come to an agreement to enforce a blanket, uniform censorship right throughout the country. If one system of government banned it, then all of them were going to ban it and all of them were going to prosecute. So there was the appearance of a monolithic blanket censorship system and a blanket community standard. As we know, of course, community standards differ, whether you are young, whether you are old, whether you are impoverished or whether you're at the top end of town. You know, there will be varying community standards there. And the people who decided to push for Portnoy to be published were saying that the ban on Portnoy, this imposition of uniform community standards around, you know, is it okay to talk about masturbation? Is it okay to talk about treating women like sex objects? How do we relate to one another? Who should we be relating to? That kind of top-down suppression was not anymore 
viable, that it wasn't appropriate anymore, and that bigger debates about who we were could be had by breaking apart that censorship system at that time. The fighters for the liberty of Portnoy, though, yeah, they were, uh, they were local publishers, but it was actually the Brits who fought in Australia for Portnoy, wasn't it? Because they were the publishers. And, and one of the things about Portnoy was it was a massive world bestseller. This was not a work of, you know, it was not a French novel. It wasn't a work of, you know, outre literature of some kind. This was a massive world bestseller, and Australia was saying no. And it was, the, the fight was actually fought by the Brits, wasn't it? In part, in part, the Brits were vital allies in this. Um, Portnoy's Complaints, UK publisher Jonathan Cape Limited, supplied vital aid to getting Portnoy into Australia and to getting the book here at a cut rate, effectively. Um, but it was Penguin Australia that took the initiative to do it. It was Penguin Australia that bore the brunt of the financial risk, um, which also, by the way, would have imperiled British Penguin, so that's, that is worth saying, um, because British Penguin was reliant on Penguin Australia's revenues. Um, and it was, in the main, Australian barristers retained by publishers and booksellers, and it was Australian witnesses, and it was Australian booksellers who were coming to fight against it. So I see this, yes, with some British links, but I see it in particular as an Australian battle. But money was an element, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, there was money. And Malcolm, money is there in the Falau story everywhere, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. And um, the role money plays in the censorship debate is entirely different, on the other hand, uh, from the way it operated in the story Patrick tells. Um, you've got what, what really fascinates me by way of contrast is how um, what a beautiful illustration of the, of the last moments of a paternalistic um, view of the world that case is. Uh, government was acting like daddy and, and daddy was protecting all the children and the, the children had to be stopped from reading uh, you know, this and other works. Um, and in that case, it was publishers who stood up on behalf of the population to say, hang on, we're, we're, not, we're not infants um, and we're not going to be treated that way. Um, the, role, the role money played in that was, um, you know, as Patrick can enlighten you, it, as, as part of the, the commerce of the book and the levering of that book into the world and um, uh, as a justification for having the book uh, out in the world. Um, in Israel Falau's case, um, if if he, uh, you know, if anybody's the victim of censorship, and you know, I say victim in inverted commas, it was the rugby player himself, who um, lost his job uh, as a result of uh, vilifying gay people and others um, in the name of the the Christian Bible. The role money played there. Um, was um, the sponsors of Australian rugby uh, brought pressure to bear on Falau's employer, which was the governing body of rugby in Australia. And the sponsors, most notably Qantas, uh, but others as well, said, we're going to walk away uh, from the game and uh, pull, the, pull the financial uh, strings um, away from you if you continue to employ this guy. Unlike the the you know the paternalistic world that that 
you have portrayed. This was almost a world where those exercising power were dodging um, morality and dodging any kind of sense of we're standing up for public morals and protecting people um, against corruption. Uh, they were saying simply, well, we just can't... This is Rugby Australia. We're saying we can't, we can't fund our game anymore if we, if we keep employing you, so you've got to go. We can't pay your wage, Israel, unless you shut up um, because we're paying you a million dollars a year and Qantas is walking and not paying. That's right. And right. not only him, but Qantas was going to walk away from the, the game as a whole. So, so everybody was going to lose. And Rugby Australia's position to him was almost, oh, you know, we'd like to, we'd like to find a compromise with you, but sorry, we can't. One of the great surprises of, of Malcolm's book is just how terrible Israel's contract was. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> As Patrick said earlier to us when we were talking about this, who were their lawyers? Yeah, rugby is an amateur code, um, and it's always... <laughs> it's, it, it, it takes pride, continuing pride in some ways, in being the amateur code. Um, and, uh, you know, amateurism was on show at its best um, in the uh, presentation of a new contract to Israel Folau, so the background was he was, a, he was the highest profile, highest paid player in rugby in Australia. Um, he had said on social media in 2018, um, in, in reply to a, a question uh, from somebody um, on social media, what is God's plan for gay people? Israel Folau said God's plan is for them to go to hell. Um, rugby Australia confronted him, said, we can't have this, don't do it anymore. Uh, Falau said, oh, OK. Um, a year, uh, six months later, his contract was up for renewal. Um, Rugby Australia again decided that they wanted to pay him uh, in the vicinity of a million dollars a year to play the game. Um, they felt they had an agreement with him uh, which included him uh, um, consenting to these limitations on his speech, uh, such as not, not vilifying... Um, gay people, um, they drew up a contract in which he had agreed to that and then sent him the wrong contract. They sent him the old contract, you know, it was a boilerplate contract. The chief executive of Rugby Australia at the time, Raylene Castle, actually went on a, a worldwide chase of Israel Folau to get, to get the right contract in front of him. The Australian team went uh, to play in Japan. Uh, Raylene Castle flew to Japan with the new contract, uh, tried to tee up a meeting with Israel. Israel wasn't going to talk to her, he, so he played his game in Japan, uh, flew to London. They flew to London, Raylene flew to London after them, and she finally pinned him down, and uh, he said, I'm not only not going to sign the contract you want, I'm not even going to read it. I'm not going to look at it. So what she did was she gave him the old, the, the old contract, you know, shows where power lay at the time, um, with an attached code of conduct. And the code of conduct uh, was, um, you know, included non-vilification, non you know, improper use of social media. Uh, but in the end, when it came to... When they sacked him uh, after he, he repeated the offence sometime later 
and uh, it went through the legal process. The, the issue um, uh, that they were arguing over was whether the, this code of conduct uh, compelled him um, to, to not vilify people. So, you know, it was a, it was, you know, it would a be mess, comic, it would be comical mess. if it wasn't so funny. Yes. <laughs> Did you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? It would be comical if it wasn't so funny. Hey, look, I don't want to be accused of vilifying homosexuals, but they do have a way of <laughs> seizing attention. Um, <laughs> There's a show-off gene somehow mysteriously linked to the gay recessive gene, um, which leads to them grabbing attention, and also there is a self-pity gene in the homosexual. <laughs> so that the list of Israel's targets, a lot of people would think it was just homosexuals, but it's not. It's drunks. Who stood up for drunks, Malcolm? <laughs> Matthew, who stood up for drunks? <laughs> Liars. No one stood up for liars. Fornicators, homosexuals, they come between fornicators and abortionists. Adulterers, where were the voices pleading to, the, to cease vilifying adulterers? Um, thieves, atheists, witches. Did you hear a single word defending witches throughout this controversy? No, I didn't either, madam. And then finally, Idolaters. Now, this one really interests me because from Israel's point of view, all Catholics are idolaters. He was saying that the billions of people who follow the Catholic Church are all going to hell. But they didn't complain. So mm. why are the pufters whinging? <laughs> I mean, it's just a question. Um, Patrick... Portnoy's complaint and this and, and Israel Folau has in the background the same players, and that is the churches. Has the role of the churches in that 50 years changed? Have their attitudes changed? Why are the churches suddenly calling for free speech? They weren't then. No. The churches have long been at the forefront of clamping down on free speech. Yep. Um, and they certainly did not like reading a 200-page novel about uh, the masturbatory habits of a young adolescent American Jew. So they were, you know, they didn't like Portnoy's complaint. Uh, and certainly they went to the barricades to try and maintain censorship in this country. Um, the thing that's happened in the 50 years since is that the centrality and the kind of unity around a Christian nation, this idea that Australia is, despite being a secular um, country, is somehow Christian, intrinsically Christian, that's ebbed, that's flowed away. This country isn't that anymore. And so to some extent, I think they're fighting a rearguard action, trying to say, we're still here, we're still belonging here, and, oh, my God, this rising tide of other religions and uh, atheists, you know, the godless atheists, heathens, um, you know, they need to fight a rearguard action and maintain their place. So they've gone from saying that you can't speak about these things to, oh, we need our right to speak to be protected. We need to be... Um, protected this time. This time, we are the ones under attack. We are the ones who might be corrupted and depraved, perhaps, by these other writings, these other ideas. Malcolm, the, 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 the speech that the churches are demanding to have is a particular kind of speech, isn't it? By which I mean it has a particular purpose. How do you mean? Well, I mean vilifying people. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the fundamental MO of of the faiths, they vilify sinners. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't doubt that that is genuine, um, but to, to follow on from what Patrick said, um, the, the, the most important change uh, between the Portnoy time and the Falau time uh, is the decline in belief and the, the falling numbers that churches have faced. So um, in, in that time, in, in 19, late 60s, early 70s, the, the churches could still take the position of being at the centre, at the centre of power and at the centre of that... that uh, Representing patent. decent... Exactly. Decency. Yeah. Decency. Yeah. And, and, and now the churches that uh, have been most active on the, um, you know, what, what you call vilification of um, homosexual people are churches who are chasing followers. They're... they're um, it, it's... A bit crass to say it, but it's almost like it's more of a marketing exercise than um, a, a statement of belief. It does coincide with belief, um, but you look at the shrinking uh, size of congregations and um, many churches are in a battle for their survival. So they're looking out at the world and thinking, what can we do to distinguish ourselves from our competitors? What can we do to, uh, you know, light the, the, the touch paper in people's hearts? That is going to bring them to our church or back to our church. Many of these churches um, believe that uh, strong feelings some people have in the community about sexuality uh, in general is the thing that's going to fire them up and get them coming to church. And uh, that's uh, churches that I've been to in that period, that, that's what seems to me to be driving them. It is all about recruitment. Well, you went to Israel Falau's father's church. Tell us about what I did, that experience I didn't go to like. his father's church. Um, uh, I had a friend who, who went there um, undercover. Um, it, it's hard to go undercover as a, as a um, reporter because only 10 or 15 people are at the um, the uh, <laughs> the services. It's a very small church, um, uh, but small but passionate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you know she she actually when she was the she was the parent of another um, Australian rugby player who was concerned um, that Israel was making approaches to her son to try to get him to come to Bible study groups to involve him in his little church. So she went along to to um, see what it was about, and um, she, she left very unimpressed by it. I've been at churches um, through a completely different kind of connection. Um, the, uh, the, the, the Sydney Anglican Synod, which you'd be well uh, familiar with, um, which is a, a church that embodies that transformation from a, an institution almost invisible, it was so central, uh, at the heart of power in Sydney to a church that is um, far more closely aligned with a uh, Hillsong or, a, you, you know, a, um, an active evangelical church that ended up donating um, uh, one to two million dollars... One million dollars. Of its, ..of its parishioners' money to the campaign against the uh, same-sex marriage vote. Mm. Um... <laughs> Yes, that's the good old Sydney Anglican Church, and they were um, uh, very, very vocal supporters of Israel Folau. Um A question. 
Rugby union made a complete hash of contracting for Israel's silence. Do you believe it is right that anybody should be contracted to be silent about their fundamental beliefs because their employer doesn't like them? Patrick? I think it depends on the power dynamic that's at play here. Um, I think if you are in a position to push back on those kind of demands um, or to exceed willingly without a kind of economic imperative, that you know, maybe then you'd be happy to sell your silence. But in the main, no. In the main, no. Malcolm? It's such a hard question because if it's a question of employment law, um, I have seen other people who've lost their jobs because of comments they've made in their own time on social media, uh, which are comments that I have agreed with. Um, now, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that, that one is unacceptable to their employer um, uh, and, and another is not just based on whether you agree with um, the comments they've made or not. And this is, you know, my, my difficulty always with the Falau case, that while I, you know, find what he said completely um, uh, obnoxious, uh, I... I'm still very torn on the question of whether he should have lost his job because if he should lose his job, so should um, uh, a, an employee of Cricket Australia who made candid comments about the availability of birth control in Tasmania. Um, and I agreed with her views and, and several others who I agree with. What did she then have I'm to say about they birth They should control, also lose their jobs. Birth control in Tasmania? Oh, she was, she was complaining. She... Um, uh, was or terminations. And, and she was not um, able to obtain a termination in Tasmania. She had to travel to, to Victoria for it due to changes in Tasmanian law. And I was, I was entirely sympathetic to her and, and you know, really um, uh, strongly against Cricket Australia and Cricket, Cricket Tasmania's actions in sacking her. Um, and it wasn't sacking her for her actions. It was for her comments for her on social media, for her speech. Um, well, where does that put me on the Falau case? Hold off on that. We're going to end with that. Um, Patrick, are you able to square the church's demands that Israel Falau be allowed to keep his job while also demanding the right to sack teachers who, for instance, might advocate homosexuality? No, I cannot. No, I can't either. Mm. Um, <laughs> Malcolm, can you... <laughs> Is there a way of squaring that? No, there's not. And yet this is exactly what the churches are demanding in their freedom of the, the, the uh, religious freedom bill. They are demanding the right to be able to continue to sack people whose views and lifestyle um, conflicts with church teaching, while at the same time insisting that people like Falau be continued to play, to play rugby union and denounce drunks, fornicators, witches, and homosexuals. I can't square that myself. And yet the churches are talking about the imperative of free speech um, for Israel Folau, but not the imperative of free speech for the chemistry teacher who says something out of school about how much he likes living with his boyfriend. But I don't think the churches are interested in consistency. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, stated the com you know the completely up on the cross bleeding obvious um, uh, 
they're, they're interested in, in a way that they weren't in, in the time you've written about. They're interested in being an extremist organisation because um, the, the nature of dialogue uh, in the last 10 years has been so polarised and um, it, it's, you, you know, it, the extremes are more attractive to people who want to gain attention and if the church's purpose is uh, to recruit followers, um, then being extreme, being inconsistent, um, being, you know, really objectionable to a lot of people is actually in their interest. Yeah, yeah. It's a recruitment tool. Yeah, it's what they're there for. These days, we have to be careful about another whole range of speech. Um, there are things we cannot say, in the, in the mind anyway, of the community. A lot of those are to do with race. A lot of it is to do with the language of race. Um, the, the, uh, the woke, the era of the woke. I mean, I hate that word, but it's a shorthand that lets us all know what we're talking about here. Is that censorship, Patrick, or is it something else? I, I don't see it as censorship. I see censorship as purely something that emanates from the state, um, because that's how it's traditionally been manifest. You know, it's the state that can throw you in jail. It's the state that can levy a monetary fine on you for saying something. Um, that's how that's you know, typically come about. What we have today, I think, is less censorship and more a kind of right of... Not right of reply, but and a program from the community, the community from the bottom up saying, this is what is acceptable and this is what is not acceptable anymore. Um, I'm sympathetic and I can understand to some extent those people who say, well, look, this feels like censorship because this feels like we're under attack yeah, what's for, the for, for areas of debate that we thought we could do this. But I think to some extent it has to be recognised that the criticisms are, you know, around woke culture, of what what culture is and what it's taking to take on, um, it's generally trying to take on areas of immense privilege of being able to range across all issues and all debates and always have a voice. You know, I sometimes find that in these free speech debates, there's a com almost a demand that you be platformed, that everyone get representation in this. And sometimes it's like not everyone needs representation. Some, not everyone needs to be heard on these issues. And if you're not being heard, if you're told, look, you know, you can sit down for this time, you know, okay, boomer, <laughs> chill... You know, that can feel like you're being censored. That can feel like you're being under attack. However, the, I mean, David this morning, very prepared as he is, sent around an article about a, a journalist at the New York Times who'd been sacked recently for using the N-word. And, and there's a... Not that the New York Times was willing to say what word he had used that provoked his sacking. Yep. Yes. Um, and, and one of the things that came out of this is this debate between the use of a word and a term and the vocalising of it. And which is acceptable? Is it okay for one person to say something and some others to not? You know, you're kind of sometimes left in a catch-22 in it. And it's not a clean answer. There's not a kind of clean understanding from it. But I think that, in general, understanding censorship as something that emanates from the state makes this question a bit easier to understand because it's now not about government. It's now not about going to jail. It's not about getting a monetary fine. It's now about community opprobrium and how that manifests and how you understand and interact with the community, whether that's through community-based institutions, whether that's through community movements. But that's where I see um, a difference, a distinction. Malcolm, when you're writing fiction, do you feel that there are things that your characters cannot say, things that your characters cannot do? 
well, definitely. There are, there are things that um, they could have said 10, 20 years ago that they can't say now. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I often feel that fiction is a, uh, you know, it's a movable, it's a game of movable obstacles and it's the art with which um, you apply yourself to um, weaving your way through um, that gives the reader or can give the reader so much delight. Um, and the, the change in jokes, for instance, the type of jokes that, that characters could tell, <laughs> um, you know, they, they can't tell now. And if the writer can't say anymore, oh, well, you know, it's not me, it's just a character, um, well, too bad. Uh, find a better way of, of doing it. Um, I, I don't think writers of fiction or non-fiction um, have any entitlement to... Um, you know, to say stuff you all. I, I can write whatever you want, and and what Patrick says about the term censorship is, I think, really really helpful because the misuse of that term um, is uh, very prevalent. Uh, it's certainly prevalent. I, I can't say I ever watched Sky News, but but I, I, I Sky Channel, but. I, I believe it's said quite a lot by by uh, some of these commentators. I am being censored. Yes. This is while they've got the microphone, they're on television, or somebody in a, in a newspaper column is saying, "I am being censored." Well, no, censorship is um, a, a a binding act by the state upon the individual. People who are on television or on social media or who have any kind of platform at all may face the unpleasantness day after day of other people rubbishing them and, and shouting at them. And, you know, I get it, uh, no doubt, no doubt, both of you get it from time to time. No, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't experience that kind but of response. To even, even if, I don't know if you lose sleep, if you have a bad morning, if you get into a snit about it, however it affects you, you are not being censored. You, you are not being locked up, you are not being silenced. And even if you choose to remain silent and if you choose to steer clear of certain subjects or ways of treating that subject, you may not like it. And there, there are things that we've just referred to that, that I might not like, but I am not being censored. I'm still in a privileged position. But when Portnoy was being censored, there was at the same time a community distaste for the kind of things that the novel was about. And there were two, there were, I mean, I think one backed the other, but the community disapproval was funneled through the law and became official censorship. What we're having now is very strong community disapproval about, the, about some subjects and the discussion of some subjects, but it no longer feeds through to a formal mechanism of censorship but nevertheless, it is silencing debate. But is it silencing debate? Like, we're still talking about race relations and the progress around race relations and around sexuality and around who gets to be accepted and who doesn't. We're still having all that. Like, it's still all happening. Um, I, feel, I, I can't help but feel that the constant invocations of my right to free speech is being taken is so often the invocation of the right wing, of conservatives who feel under attack. Who um, blame the left wing, by the way, is the great the forces of censorship in Australia today is the left. Yes. 
that is the apparent tag. Um, but it's, it's almost always the case that the right wing, as, as, Michael, as Malcolm, sorry, not, not the right wing, as Malcolm said, but as Malcolm said, it's usually the person who's got the microphone who's complaining about their right to free speech being impinged and, and their um, ability to voice those opinions free of repercussion that are being silenced. It's curious, isn't it, that, that so often um, the right to free speech seems not to include the right of other people to say what's being said is rubbish. <laughs> um, and this is why I, I mentioned earlier, my sense of free speech is an opportunity to speak. It doesn't mean other people can't say, you're speaking tosh. Mm. And yet so often there are people at the moment, it's a very, very American thing, to stand there and say, how can you say that? Um, you know, this is, my speech is free. Yes, madam, your speech is free and it's rubbish. Um, seems to be difficult for people. Um, by the way, do we have um, formal guarantees of free speech in this country? Not as I understand it. Uh, Malcolm? No. Uh, are there many other countries, Western democracies, like us who don't have formal guarantees of free speech? Not sure. Or oh, Britain. Does Britain have a formal guarantee? Of well, one of the problems of becoming a member of the European Union was that it had to sign up to some guarantees of rights. And um, I understand that those guarantees will survive the divorce with Brexit. So, yes, they I do. I thought that was the whole point of Brexit. To no, no, no. no, no. The, the whole point of Brexit is to make taxi drivers queue... I mean, uh, <laughs> truck drivers queue for a very long time in Kent. Um, and can you imagine the state of the roadsides, ladies and gentlemen? I won't go there in any detail. Um, but... No, Australia is the only Western democracy that does not have constitutional or, or um, national guarantees of free speech. And, of course, one of the reasons for that um, is uh, the discussion around Australia's constitution. Um, on a very, 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 very hot day in Melbourne in 1898, they got to the area of discussion about, um, about rights and there was a very strong push to include in the Australian Constitution at least a version of the United States 14th Amendment, which was equal treatment under the law. And Sir Isaac Isaacs pointed out that that would give Chinese furniture makers in Victoria um, enforceable rights along with everybody else, and they decided not to give us any rights. So as Malcolm, as, as, as um, Patrick was saying, this is... The, the lack of rights in Australia is fundamentally racist. It's fundamentally racist. And then, of course, the greatest campaigners against rights in the last 20 or 30 years have been the churches. Um, and um, in, certainly in the work that I've done about around sort of formal guarantees of rights of free speech, um, there's a kind of unanimity out there amongst the lawyers who are begging and arguing and pleading for some sort of guarantees of free speech that you won't get it in Australia until the churches actually come around to it. Mm. Um, and also News Limited. Because <laughs> that's another absolutely unique situation in the world, which is a news organisation that has consistently campaigned against constitutional guarantees of free speech. Um, but the churches and News Limited at the moment hold the secret to that. We don't have the free speech that the churches are complaining is being taken away from them. It's an interesting situation. <laughs> well, thank goodness for COVID. Um, 
Yes. Because we did have this uh, rel religious freedom bill uh, making its way through the um, the federal uh, legislative yep. system, um, which was a, um, a, a actually Malcolm Turnbull uh, kicked it off as a, um, a kind of a consolation prize for the um, 30 plus percent uh, of voters who voted no in the same-sex marriage um, referendum. Um, uh, Which to, is a sizable chunk of the electorate. Yeah, yeah, and to give them something back, he said, well, we're going to discuss um, bringing in laws that uh, privilege religious speech um, above others. Um, and when, when um, Scott Morrison took over as Prime Minister, he was advancing that um, uh, further in the direction of uh, becoming law, and we, we had um, submissions from thousands of individuals and organisations, and you know, um, what, what's good from uh, good results of COVID, uh, one is we can work at home more and the other is that uh, that bill seemed to die. Mm. I don't think it's completely died, but I think it's probably near, near dead. Mm. Look, we have a microphone back there and some questions, and I think that this audience could bring some more discipline to this conversation <laughs> that is required here. Um, <laughs> please... Uh, please don't touch the microphone um, or you'll be in trouble. You'll get um, frightful disease. Okay, yes. Oh, hi, this is a question for Patrick in particular, but maybe the others have a th some thoughts as well. Um, I really enjoyed your book, Patrick, and I found it really thrilling, you know, the way you described, you know, how it all unfolded. Um, and I had a question about... Who do you think were all those tens of thousands of Australians who were going to the bookshops and buying the brown paper bags with the books in it? Like, what? Who are these Australians who actually were not the quiet ones? Um, you know, who are maybe very conservative but actually wanted things to change. Um, it, it's a it's a really good question. Thank you for asking it. Um, one of the things I found when I was reading the book, sorry, researching the book, was uh, file footage from the ABC where a TV crew went outside Angus and Robertson in Sydney and interviewed a couple of um, young women who were buying the book. And they said, oh, yeah, buying it, A, because um, I'm not supposed to, uh, and B, because my dad told me not to. And This is on television. On television. Yes, go one, on. God love our ABC. I mean, what a wonderful institution. Uh, and the last one was because I want to know more about this. So... You know, the issues that are spoken to in Portnoy's complaint, you know, on one hand, we can laugh at the fact that it's all about masturbation and it's all about, you know, putting your penis in a... Uh, yes. ..etc. In the dinner. <laughs> yep. Um, Late you know, afternoon in Adelaide, Patrick. <laughs> I should say, just on this point, I should say, Adelaide, South Australia, this was the state that said, we're going to let Portnoy in. This is the state that had Don Dunstan who said, we're going to break apart this uniform yeah. system of censorship. So give yourself a pat on the back for that. Uh, but at the same time, please acknowledge that Charles Kingston, the man who introduced the Customs Act that allowed for the creation of the censorship system, um, was a South Australian. And he's also the same man who introduced the White Australia policy, which came along in conjunction with and was a product of the censorship system. So top marks for South Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I lived in a very conservative, was brought up in a very conservative um, household in a conservative part of Sydney, uh, ticked all the boxes of conservatism. There was a copy of Portnoy's complaint in our house and um, I never got to ask my dad uh, how or why he'd got it, but I have a feeling he was one of the people who just didn't want to be told what not to do 
and uh, he, he probably wasn't that curious about masturbation. Um, well, he was uh, a man. <laughs> but uh, the, the censorship um, signal was enough to get him out to the bookshop to, to, to buy that book. Yes. Yeah, hi, thanks. I was wondering if one or all of you could talk about um, <clears throat> censorship's cousin, uh, defamation, because uh, it's, it's sort of a vexing issue right now with the historical uh, rape in the, uh, in the capital and, um, and uh, other press freedoms that, the, the, that is apparently in train and legislation. So what's, what's the distinction between, or could you just talk a bit more about the mechanisms of defamation versus censorship? Malcolm, that's obviously for you. Uh, look, um, a, a, as a journalist, you're always fighting against the, the tightness of our defamation um, laws. And so I, I can't speak objectively. I, I speak entirely out of self-interest when I, when I say that, you know, journalists are not subject to censorship by and large, uh, but they are subject to... Um, the uh, the restrictions of defamation law, which um, in Australia again, David, you'd be you'd be more expert than I am. Um, I believe they are much tighter here, certainly tighter than in the US, but um, and and tighter than in the UK as well. Um, and but I'm actually one of those people who puts up the, my hand for defamation law. I think we need a defamation law. I don't think the press should be free to destroy people. Um, but it's about the framing of the law and the way in which it operates and the defences to it. But we don't have the kinds of defences that there are in the United States um, of, of both of public interest and of the kind of freedom that there is to debate um, the fate and the pasts of um, important public figures. Um, I believe in the United States we would be having a more open discussion about some of the problems of the Australian Cabinet at the moment. Yes, but oh. uh, uh, are these laws even um, working anymore? Is the next question. Uh, yes. the, the name of the the person being accused in the case you're referring to uh, hasn't been published in in mainstream media. It would take you all of thirty seconds to find out that name uh, if you go on Twitter. Um, so the, the the law needs to um, start to adapt to the reality of the situation. Can I ask this crowd a question? Who knows the name of the minister in question? Now that surprises me. I would have thought more people knew it, but 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 there you go. These things work a bit. Um, but defamation law is an incredibly complex area, and there are dreadful problems in Australia. A colleague of, of, of mine from the ABC was recently sued by the proprietors of a private hospital which something like 20 years ago killed a number of people with a, with a therapy of deep sleep that they were being given. There was a royal commission which condemned those men and yet those men all these years later succeeded in suing him for defamation. They didn't win the case, but winning the case, you don't have to win the case. You just need to tie people up for three or four years and get them to spend millions on legal fees. And it was an outrage. The courts should have said at the very start, this case cannot succeed. We are not going to waste our time fighting it. But 
that's not how it operates in Australia. Yes. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, I think that the recent suspension of Donald Trump's Twitter account really like highlights a sort of duplicity in Western values. So I was wondering on your perspective, and you might be somewhat biased, but what do you think? <laughs> just say. But, the take the microphone from that woman. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, but what do you think is a greater threat to liberal democracy? The suspension of free speech or the spread of misinformation and incitement of violence? So what do you think is a better threat? If you can't answer, if you, got, if you aren't free to answer misinformation and lies, then, then we are in deep, deep trouble. I think it's outrageous that Trump is not able to use his Twitter account. Apart from anything, I miss him. Um, I think that's completely outrageous. And um, it's, it still astonishes me. Um, it still astonishes me that anybody uses Twitter, but that's another <laughs> argument altogether. But the two go together. They're, they're two halves of the same thing. So I don't think you can pull, pull them apart and say one is a greater threat than the other uh, because they are so interconnected. Uh, my only question for Twitter was why they waited until he wasn't president anymore. Uh, I've got no problem with Twitter taking it away, but also at the same time, I don't particularly trust a gigantic company with millions of bucks to adjudicate on questions of speech. So... Um, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Patrick, my question's for you. I wondered when you were looking into the censorship around Portnoy's complaint, if you checked if chicken liver sales increased. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Mrs Brown. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a rather assiduous researcher, uh, but I did not, um, okay. in fact. <laughs> um, I am, however, of the generation that, uh, that would have come of age watching American Pie. Um, <laughs> and I remember at school when that movie came out, people telling me, yes, McDonald's apple pie is... Um... <laughs> Thank you for that information. So, so You're useful. very welcome, Mrs Brown. <laughs> And hey. Mal um, I have one more question, oh. briefly. Malcolm and Patrick, how do you feel about what's happened with Chris Lilly? The shutting down of Chris Lilly. Yeah, well, I, I don't find that stuff particularly funny, so um, it, it interested me reading Patrick's book that artistic merit or literary quality um, played into the question of whether something should be should be shut down or not. And um, for me, if that's still applied, Chris Lilly failed the, the tests of literary quality with, with those particular um, they characters. They weren't funny enough. They weren't funny enough. Now, should that be, should that be a criterion? Um, I don't know. I, you hate to see anybody cancelled or, or, or put out. I, I, you know, think the, the default position should, should always be on the side of, of freedom. Um, but I didn't shed any tears over that one. Yes. Thank you. Um, on the question of continuation or otherwise of employment of people like Israel Folau, um, 
Do you, any of you see, or I'm interested in your thoughts on if there is a meaningful difference between people whose employment uh, intrinsically puts them in the public eye and makes them, by virtue of that, a role model and the rest of us for whom that's not the case? Thanks. No, from me. Yeah, look, I, I always ask questions, is that person a role model? What, what influence are they having? Rugby, rugby union um, has not been a safe place for gay people to come out um, for the last 150 years. Um, rugby league has had one uh, uh, currently playing um, uh, man come out during his career. Israel Folau didn't start the... Um, the creation of these codes and, and football dressing rooms as unsafe places for, for um, you know, gay men to be free. Uh, so I'm not sure if he is such a role model. However, there are plenty of those who are more personally affected by it, um, who speak very strongly and very persuasively um, on the other side and say, yes, when, when people hear it coming from somebody like Israel Folau, it's not as if others are trying to be like him, but they feel freer in, in being the same way. So, you know, he's not a role model so much as a, um, an enabler, if you like, of, of behaviour that is already there. Patrick. I'm not sure about this distinction kind of implied between the public and the private. Like... Um, Israel Folau, yeah, sure, he's up in the lights because he's a, he's a you know, professional rugby player, but um, each of us are performing jobs generally pretty well. Um, we're all interacting with lots of people. Um, I, I kind of don't see how and why you're not in the public just in those, just as in your day jobs. And so the kind of modelling you perform there, um, you know, I think that it's incumbent on all of us generally to be conscious of the effects of that modelling, you know, whether that's for kids that we encounter in the job, whether that's with colleagues, whether that's with superiors and um, subordinates. You know, it's just that, that disjunction, that private public is a real problematic bit for me. I think it implies a difference between what you are as a private person, what you are as a public, and enables some people to disown things they do publicly or things they do privately in the interest of it not being real or something being outsider-ish. Uh, I, I just don't agree with that kind of disjunction. But Malcolm, wouldn't it make just the most enormous difference if all of the gay men playing rugby said, I am a poof, and just, <laughs> and just came out. You know, coming out is the mechanism by which society has to confront the truth and the ordinary banality of being gay. It's just a completely banal sexual variant. And you just... And what is it about rugby, what is it about sport that gives people like Falau the leverage because of the fear of saying, I'm one. Yeah, At which point it ends. Well, and what is it that makes women's sport so different? Yes. So completely different, uh, where, y y you know, um, it's, you know, it, it is that banal. Um, uh, I, I don't have an answer for your question. You know, I, I agree entirely with the with the sentiment um, you're expressing, but, um, you know, the, the answer to your question is this is the way people have been for a long time and people are taking equally long to change. But why not? But what is it about sport, about men, about the notion of masculinity? Anyway, 
Um, we've got about one minute left, and I'm going to have one more question from there, and then we're going to say what we, whether we think Falau should be allowed to speak. Yes, question. Uh, hi, thank you. I just want to first of all say thank you for having a conversation about free speech because as an activist, someone who's actively participating in politics, it is so incredibly frustrating to have conversations of, of, about free speech immediately shut down in lieu of, oh, it's attack on my rights and my rights as a person, so just thank you. Um, my question, and I could ask a million things, um, but my question is with the incessance on making um, uh, an open platform and uh, open for debate, we have seen people like Marjorie Green come into cabinet and the uh, acceptance of having things like QAnon in mainstream politics. I want to know what you uh, individually think about what this is, what effect this is gonna have on mainstream politics because it's scary. <laughs> Well, I'm of the view that eventually we'll develop herd immunity. <laughs> Natural selection. <laughs> Patrick. Uh, I generally think Australians are quite sensible. Um, you know, Marjorie Green and QAnon in particular are United States-bound kind of phenomena. Uh, and I think compulsory voting kind of helps inoculate us against some of that extremism. Um, but that said, you know, the ability of, of news media organisations in particular to regulate the space of the, of the square, right, to say who can speak and who can't, um, allowing neo-Nazis in, you know, like, what the hell? Get off that. Yeah. The, the fact that you are presenting a debate does not mean there's all sides to it. It does not mean that every side needs representation. Um, and the news media traditionally exercises a responsibility about who they grant that right to. I think a more judicious approach to who they give a platform to is warranted. I think we have to keep in mind that Australia and the United States are fundamentally different countries. The United States of America is a country of belief and, they, and the dream, the great American dream, you know, dream the great dream. What do we think of dreamers? We think they're a bit, they're idiotic. In America, they're the heroes. We are different countries. There was, a, about 10 years ago, there was a survey in the United States of America done by very, very good, very, very good um, research outfit called the Pew Research Center. And they found something like 73% of Americans believe they have a personal guardian angel. This is a country of belief. And if you believe hard enough that the world is run by a conspiracy of Jews who are stealing children, and it's called QAnon, you can really believe it. But we can look at it and say it is barking mad. And we are free to say, it is barking mad, but I'm not, and I think that that will protect us. I think that our scepticism will protect us, and I hope so. But now we have to end with the $60 million question. Oop. In two parts to Patrick Mullins. Patrick, what would be the response, do you think, of the community, not the government, but the community, if Portnoy's complaint were published today? A gigantic shrug. Australians don't care about books anymore, for a start. <laughs> you say that to a crowd who is sitting here in discomfort, listening to us for an hour. The, aside from this wonderful, learned minority, unfortunately, um, the other thing is, I mean, this is a book that's been overtaken by time, by, by events, by portrayals of sexuality. I mean, 
Sorry, I just I, I don't want to say my generation, but I keep saying it. Um, my generation. I'm a bit uh, of an uh, yes. I'm a bit of a challenge to you. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> my generation of the people who saw two girls, one cup. Like, there's not much in that book that is going to shock us anymore. What I think is relevant about that book, what I think is striking about that book and still useful in Portnoy's complaint is its portrayal of isolation, and in particular, a fixation on sexuality above true connection with other people. Um, talking about America and an online kind of phenomena there, um, the incels, you know, the involuntary celibates, like that smacks to me of Portnoy, nonstop. Aggressive, male, unable to connect with other people, wound up and angry and bitter and guilty and fundamentally small and in some sense worthy of pity for that smallness. Um, and a yeah. follow-up question. Should Israel Folau have been allowed to speak? Sure. Malcolm? Well, he was allowed to speak. Nobody, nobody stopped him. Uh, he just he wasn't... He lost his job. He lost his job. Um, uh, look, I... I'm always uncomfortable with striking any position because I think Patrick, um, when we were talking about it before, put it really well. It's like a game of musical chairs where every time you sit down, you, you find yourself sitting next to somebody you don't like. Um, <laughs> when the music stops. When the music stops. So um, to, to quote uh, Shakespeare in Hamlet, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Um, my response is slightly cowardly. Uh, which is that I thought Folau, um, the Rugby Australia was right in, in sacking him because there was no way they could justify uh, paying 800000 to a million dollars a year to somebody for whom evangelising became a greater priority than playing rugby. Uh, and it would have been the same if he was spending all day playing golf. It would have been the same if he'd been spending all day um, reading books. Um, he, he no longer, he no longer, he no books, longer placed yeah. rugby as his priority, so he, he deserved to lose his job. But to be honest, my heart, my heart sings when I read about times when books were the most important censorship issues facing us and not stupid oafs of footballers. <laughs> well, I reckon he should have been allowed to speak. I reckon it should be very, very clear what he was doing, vilifying people, um, and I think the proper response should have been to have a look at the whole of the list and laugh. <laughs> Just laugh. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. These, these gentlemen will be signing their books over in the book signing tent, and let me tell you, they're worth buying. Thank you very, very much.